There is no grape juice in the Czech Republic. The story goes that Thomas Welch invented grape juice so former alcoholics could partake in the Lord's Supper without fear of relapse. And between his adventures as a dentist in Minnesota and a prohibitionist in New Jersey, Welch never made it to Eastern Europe. So of course there is no grape juice in the Czech Republic. For me, wine tastes like the furthest thing from grace. And consecrated cranberry juice tastes like the furthest thing from home, which is to say I only got homesick on Thursday nights. But God is too big to exist only in a bottle of Welch's, and I have this terrible habit of placing God in these specific pews and complaining when I don't find her elsewhere, as if it's her fault for not showing up instead of my fault for not looking. So I looked, and I listened, and God didn't show up as grape juice, but that's okay, because God showed up as a five-year-old girl. Her name was Ada, the pastor's daughter at an English-speaking church. She could deconstruct the anatomy of a rainbow in two languages, but could never remember her own birthday. And on Easter Sunday, her hands gently reached for my prayer beads, the way the wind reaches for the trees, and she asked me, Is that Jesus? He hung on a cross around my neck, and I said yes. She had found Jesus in all his plastic glory. I had found him at the marketplace, buried under a pile of wooden prayer beads, my hands digging through prayers before he surfaced like an amen. A few hours later at a Mexican restaurant, her fingers found her way back to the cross, and she sounded surprised as she said, he's still on there. I said, yes, <laughs> of course he is. But wait, no, Jesus actually isn't on the cross anymore. That's the whole point of Easter. Then again, if Jesus died for the sins of humanity's tomorrow, which is our today, that puts him on the cross for every time we sin. But no, he walked out of the tomb and God's sun rose a few hours before the sky's sun so that all humanity could be forgiven. But then shouldn't every day feel like Easter Sunday? And that's really not the case. And this is how I learned that God is the God of mourning spelled both ways. Sometimes the church fashions itself into a thesaurus, where difference is a synonym for division, and this congregation is an antonym for that congregation. But we aren't called into a communion of either or. We are baptized in the name of both and. So look behind me at this table. The table that was a tree long before any of us knew that your soul could be just as hungry as your stomach. The Protestant cross stands beside the Catholic crucifix, and they are two very different symbols that wrestle with each other until dawn, so it shouldn't come as a surprise when I say God is the God of both crosses. He is the God of the empty cross, reminding us that Jesus conquered death, and he is the God of the painfully full cross, reminding us that when grace and love are done right, sometimes it will be wonderful and sometimes it will hurt a lot. It's times like this when I understand where the Greeks were coming from. Like, doesn't it make sense to have a god for the harvest, a god for the ocean, a god for the afterlife, all neat and organized into separate categories? They wanted to avoid arduous theology debates about how a deity could be both omnibenevolent and omnipotent, but we don't have that luxury. So here I am at a pulpit that was a tree long before any of us realized that all-knowing and all-good try so hard to be synonyms. The way the stars try to share the sky with the sun, we know they are both there, but we can only see one at a time. From down here, you can see both from up there, which makes astronomy a good metaphor, and if you know anything about me, I cannot resist a good metaphor. 
The Bible passage we read today is sometimes cited in opposition of denominations. But Paul isn't condemning difference. I think that interpretation only happened when we read, let there be no divisions among you, as let there be no different expressions of faith among you. The whale and the sparrow cannot experience God the same way. The sparrow knows nothing of the sea, and the whale knows nothing of the sky, so it wouldn't be fair for God to make one of those places his domain and expect all of creation to understand. The empty cross is the promise of tomorrow for those who can't see past today. It is the lighthouse that wasn't on the map but beckons us home anyways. It is the visual embodiment of hallelujah. It is the ultimate spoiler alert, telling us how the story ends, telling us that no matter how much pain lies in this season, the series finale will be everything you ever wanted it to be. The cross is empty for every act of forgiveness, for every time we love our neighbor, for every time we hit rock bottom and a friend comes to find us. The crucifix is the promise that God cries with us. It is the sinking feeling between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It is piling all our mistakes and regrets into God's hands and asking him to reshape them into something beautiful somehow. It is the reminder that God became vulnerable enough to get hurt, and so should we. But it is also a reminder that we need to do the right thing, even if it hurts. Even if it causes those who once shouted Hosanna to abandon us, it is a reminder that when we flip the tables in the temple, when we stand in opposition to the empire and fight the system with radical gentleness and rebellious love, the world will not, the world will not welcome us. It will not treat us kindly. On that devastating Friday, the cross that was a tree created by God's breath long before it would feel his son take his last breath, we got our symbol. And personally, I don't like those pretty crosses, the shiny ones, all decorative and delicate, worn as stainless steel and diamond, forgetting that the cross is a torture device, a murder device. Imagine wearing a pretty gold guillotine necklace. When Christians reclaimed the cross as their symbol, it was with strength and beauty, yes, but also with responsibility. The cross symbolizes both death and life pain and survival, and recognizing both the Protestant cross and the Catholic crucifix, we come to see that these things really aren't opposites. We praise the God of the earthquake, the storm, the rainbow, the hungry, the enemy, the cross, the empty grave. A God who is so large and far away, but can also fit in the palm of our hands. The God who makes the creature say grace, thanks, love, life, joy, and home. The leadership retreat a few weeks ago, or I guess months ago, reminded me of how ubiquitous and nameless God can be. Communion that night was just as much in the baking as it was in the taking, but I think my favorite part of communion will always be in the breaking. How challah bread isn't that special on its own, but what it comes to symbolize could never have a price tag because that bread is a poem for how brokenness has every right to claim sacrament as wholeness because holiness calls you by name and holds you even at your most broken. So when I say Jesus is no longer on the cross, it's because his arms are too full of you and his feet are too busy dancing and his side still hurts but this time from laughter and his head still wears a crown but instead of thorns it's a daisy chain made by a five-year-old and when i say jesus is still on the cross it's so you can be free to dance 
with him. And don't ask me how he can be both on the cross and dancing with you at the same time, because if you haven't figured it out yet, religion, much like poetry, deals more in questions than in answers.